How many people <clears throat> have not heard any of the talks in this series? Show of hands, please. Okay. So we've already <clears throat> gone beyond aging, sickness, and death. And you come in for the good part. Because so far it's been all bad news, and now there's some good news. See, a good timing. What? This is it. Can't do any better, sorry. Um, any people <clears throat> who are here at CIMC, and I don't mean just this building for the first time, because you're new to this center, wherever, yeah. Any people really new to insight meditation, because you're really at the exploratory stage, or maybe you've tried it once or twice? Okay, but uh, very many of you have not been here. Uh, I don't know how many, but there have been a fair number of talks over a year. Not every Wednesday, but staggered over many Wednesdays. And what I've been trying to do is build on what has come before. Obviously, uh, I can't do that adequately, especially for those of you who are uh, here for the first time. But what I can do is <clears throat> try to give you a sense of uh, why this practice, where it fits in, how it might be useful to you. Uh, it's, a, it's not new. It hasn't been done, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that is the technical name for it is marana sati, that is mindfulness of, of death. Uh, if you go to Buddhist monasteries, at least the ones that I've known in Asia, and I would say more and more here, uh, meditation centers, although in, in the West it has uh, been uh, omitted or neglected. People talk about aging, sickness, and death, but not specific meditations that directly engage these three aspects of life that none of us can escape, all of us, everyone sitting in this room. We're all in this together. This is not a, an abstract theoretical subject. Uh, it affects us very, very deeply. Um, when people would start their practice, the Buddha would give them five contemplations to reflect on. And in going through all this, we've, uh, one kind of practice is what is called reflection. It's not the uh, observation exactly that many of you have been trained in. It's where you uh, it can be a skillful use of thought. So for those of you who think that thought has no place in the Dharma, it's not true. Of course, it has a place in the verbal teaching, verbal wisdom, which is where we begin and we come back to from time to time. But there are reflections that um, basic notions, ideas, or observations, or things that come to you in life, you've all done it already. Any reasonably sensitive person has had things happen to them and then they've reflected on the implications of that. But the Buddha made it specific. The first one was, I must age. There is no escaping, or I can't escape from aging, from getting old. I must get ill. There's no escape from illness. I must die. I can't escape from death. The fourth one related, and this is in one sense, bad news. Uh, I'll be separated from all that is dear to me. 
That is, when you die, that's what happens. The fifth one is often more complex and confuses people. Uh, to paraphrase it slightly, it's about karma. And what it says is that I'm the heir of my actions. That is, I inherit the consequences of my deeds. That's the, in one sense, future lifetimes. On one level, uh, what it means is that how we behave now affects if there are future lifetimes. Uh, and in the Buddhist teachings, there are. I mean, it's, it's uh, mentioned over and over again. Uh, that how we behave now, of course, is highly significant as to uh, what happens when we're reborn. But there's a significance to it that's much more close to us at hand. It's something extremely practical in this moment, and we may have to get time to go into it this evening. I don't know. Whereas karma is hardly something fatalistic. It's often used that way, kind of popularized karma. Oh, it's my karma. Uh, that isn't exactly how the Buddha, what the Buddha had in mind. Um, one way to look at our practice in general, what, the theme that I've been uh, exploring over and over again in all these many, many talks has been that one way to look at practice is that it's the practice of intimacy. What we're learning is how to, one of the things we're learning, I would say it's central. If you're a meditator, it's central is how to receive each moment without separation, or intimacy of practice. That is, intimacy here having a much more broad-spectrum, comprehensive meaning. It means intimacy with all things, with nature, any aspect of nature. Again, not as an ideal, but a particular expression of the environment at a given moment. And of course, our body, our mind, the bodies of others. In short, what makes up our life. Practice is learning how to experience that directly, receive it without separation. It's a kind of seeing or experience that can be called intimate because there's nothing between you and what it is that you're attending to. Typically, we are not in that, living that way. That is, when we're doing one thing, we're thinking about another or we're thinking about what we're doing at the moment in such a way as to uh, put a barrier between ourselves and what we're doing. We're not naked. We're not fully experiencing life directly. Insight meditation grows out of the ability to experience reality with that kind of intimate directness, unmediated by concepts, by ideas, even Buddhist ones. As beautiful as some of them may be, uh, they can get in the way. And so that's a general theme. All practice, one way or another, is, is doing that, whether you call it mindfulness or awareness. And I would say it's true in all the Buddhist schools. And so if the whole practice is about intimacy, that is, uh, to spell out a little bit of what some of the consequences of that can be, it has to do with the fact that we human beings seem to be suffering a great deal. And in the Buddhist teaching, uh, this suffering is due to ignorance. That is, we are ignoring a lot of things. And as a result, 
we pay for it. So what would happen if we turn things around instead of ignoring our experience or what's happening uh, if we meet it directly? So from this point of view, uh, we come to what perhaps many or most of you have heard of, the Four Noble Truths, the first one being that there is suffering in human life or in life. Who can deny that? It's not saying that there's only suffering. Sometimes you read that. There is suffering. The challenge of a, of a practitioner is, is when there is to know it, whether it's extraordinarily rarefied, subtle kinds of suffering, a certain kind of unease, or whether it's the obvious kind that all of us have to know it. The difference being that in the Buddhist teaching, suffering is considered a gateway or a doorway to liberation. But it's, it becomes a gateway to liberation insofar as you can meet your suffering intimately, to see into and through it and to let it go, which is what takes us to uh, where this practice heads, and I'd rather not give it a name just yet. Hippocrates, great Greek physician, often referred to as the father of at least uh, Western medicine, said that exactly where illness is happening, that's where you find cure. That was one of his precepts. Where, there is, where in illness is happening, that's where the cure is. And I would say that holds up for our practice as, as well. Okay, so far so good. Now, why, what's so special about aging, sickness, and death? Well, what could be more close at hand or in our face than aging, sickness, and death? All of us. And by and large, with exceptions, obviously, and a great range and variety of responses, uh, we push it away. That is something that is unavoidable, inevitable, and which affects absolutely every one of us and it's dramatic, is something that we don't want uh, to face directly. And so that tension between these three states, which, which to live a sane life, to develop wisdom, must be met. The, in other words, ostrich mind won't work here. Or what I refer to as Aunt Jenny mind. I had a, an aunt, and anytime there was any un, anything unpleasant on the news or if there was a report about trouble with a family member, she would put her head down on the kitchen table and, you know, just go like that. So we used to call it the Aunt Jenny effect. I don't think it helped Aunt Jenny and it won't help us. And yet we have a very, very strong conditioning uh, to relate to aging, sickness, and death in certain ways, which actually makes things much worse. And we've gone into that in, in some detail. So what's being suggested here is that, uh, well, let's put it in terms of a question. Is it possible for, the, for us to be sane, at peace, even happy, in an aging body, in a body that has only one direction? And it's ineluctable. There's no, there are no exceptions. It's happening wherever you look. I, I left a peach on the kitchen table in a basket a few days too long, and now you can't eat it. 
just a natural process. It might have lasted longer if it weren't as hot, if a different kind of peach. But there's something, one meaning of Dharma is natural truth. So what the, the Buddha's teaching is uh, has an affinity with science in certain ways, at least many aspects of it. And that we're trying to clearly see how things are. But we're not studying reality outside of ourselves. That's been done and is being done beautifully and brilliantly. Uh, we're doing it with ourselves. That is, we are the scientists, we're the laboratory, and we're, we're the, uh, the mice, too. We're the whole thing. Um, a foundation for understanding agents, sickness and death, a very ancient, tried and true, solid one that I've been using for years in my own practice, and when we teach it, we have a practice group here once a year. It's very basic vipassana. In fact, it's one of the main meanings of vipassana, is insight into impermanence. Because aging, sickness, and death are uh, dramatic expressions of the law of impermanence, of anicca, that whatever arises must pass away. Everything is subject to this law. It's very obvious. So, aging, sickness, and death, though, have to do with our arising and passing away. And that makes it different. It's my aging, my sickness, and my death. Very, very different than if you're studying uh, ants or glaciers or whatever. Okay, so any of you who have studied practice vipassana, you know that one of the main meanings of vipassana is insight into anicca, into impermanence. Uh, and I would say that's one of the uh, legacies that the Buddha left for the human race. Uh, an obvious and remarkable one that if taken on is extraordinarily helpful. Everyone has known about impermanence. It's not news. You won't read a, it won't be on the internet or on the New York Times headline tomorrow that a speaker in Central Square announces that everything is impermanent. And even at the time of the Buddha, everyone knew this. It's been philosophized, poetry, everything, the history of it. What was added here was to see this law at work in ourselves. First-hand observation, intimate observation, direct. And a lot of our practice benefits from our ability. Uh, we keep talking about being in the moment. How can you be in the moment unless you uh, start to uh, acknowledge, recognize, and learn how to relax with the law of change? Because the moments keep changing. So that law, however you speak about it, is always with us. And if you uh, like to think of the practice as, let's say, as I do, receiving the moment without separation, how can you do that if it's a changing world? Well, you have to begin to see that. You have to begin to see the changes, and especially the changes in you. From moment to moment, the environment is changing, this body is changing, of course, our mind is changing. Okay, so this is a kind of ongoing context, and what has been mentioned are some of the, um, the value of doing meditations of this sort. Those of you who have been through some more of these talks and have heard this, of course, it's something that we need to hear in a certain sense every day. 
Um, there are reflections, as I mentioned. There also are ways of enlivening or activating this sense of the fact that we don't have forever. Like, probably you all know that breath awareness is a, a solid part of our meditation. It's not the exclusive thing we do, but it's an important one for many people, perhaps most. But in a breath, if instead of just attending to the in-breath and the out-breath, uh, you contemplate it from the point of view of uh, life and death itself, that is, literally, life is hanging by a breath, suddenly that turns from a concentration, calming or tranquility meditation exercise, into a wisdom exercise. As you begin to see uh, the nature of the breath, and that literally, you breathe out, and then there's a pause. Now, we assume that we're going to breathe in. And hopefully that is true for quite a while. But at a certain point, that won't be so. And at that moment, it will be called death. Okay. That's one method. The Buddha taught it early on. Another approach has to do with uh, just these reflections not just formal reflections, but noticing, noticing fall, noticing leaves changing, noticing storefronts, a store that was in business for 25 years, now is gone. Uh, noticing you look in the mirror and you see you've changed, or you see, uh, uh, just yesterday I noticed a newscaster I hadn't seen for a year or more uh, at the United Nations, and suddenly he's, I remembered him as boyish, and now uh, he was a, more of a man with graying hair. Hmm. And you can reflect on that, or the peach, and understand that we're subject to the same lawfulness. Now, it's not done to drive us into depression or fear, although it can arouse that. It's a method that is not for everyone all the time. It has to be appropriate for you. But whether it's a formal method for you or not, this process is unrelenting, right? So no one escapes it. Um, one of the values, and here are a number of the values of uh, why people do the, why people voluntarily uh, take on such a practice. Uh, one of the values is that it um, awakens or arouses the fear. Let's say if you're afraid of death, if you're afraid of aging, for most of us, it lies dormant. That as we keep it contained, we're distracted enough. We have this extraordinary and miraculous uh, delusion that somehow we know we're going to die, at least as an idea, but it's way down the road, somewhere way off. And that road gets shorter as we get older. But you can always, usually, you can find someone older than yourself, you know, to relativize the whole thing. Um, so it's intentionally used to arouse fear. Now, why would you do that? You wouldn't do it unless your practice were at a point where you could make really constructive and creative and beneficial use of fear. That is, if you have fear and it's in the unconscious, it's not as if it's not affecting you. In fact, it can be distorting your life in many ways, as all fears do. 
And so at a certain point in practice, whether it comes up naturally or you feel ready to take it on, the quality of your attention is stable enough. A lot of what I'll be saying tonight is not uh, available to people who don't have a meditation practice. I mean, it may not be. I don't know. So those of you who are really new, uh, don't think, oh my God, I could never do that. It's not expected that you could. Uh, a lot of what we learn in meditation with breath, walking meditation, the precepts, uh, lo developing loving kindness, all kinds of attitudes, constructive ones, being alert in our daily life, all of that increasingly gives us an inner strength and it reshapes the mind, it cultivates the mind, what is called a bhavana, so that the mind can actually become clear and steady and it can look at fear. And of course, the big one is fear of death. All the others are, in a sense, branches from that tree. Many of our fears are like small death. So if you bring it up and you can practice with it, you have the opportunity of freeing yourself from it. Another use, which the Buddha, Buddha really used a lot, perhaps most of all, in terms of its reflective ability, is what is called samvega. And here, death is used as a wake-up call, that is, the reflection on the inevitability of our aging sickness and death is designed to give us a sense of the urgency of spiritual practice, whatever your spiritual practice, Buddhist or otherwise, or no formal religion. We don't have time to waste, for goodness sakes, wake up. That's the message of it. Uh, as you more and more are able to see the true nature of what it is we're involved in, what it means to be alive. And if you have a spiritual inclination, and if you've already used up perhaps uh, some of the uh, dead ends in life, thinking that all kinds of things will make you absolutely happy, and having seen that it isn't so, wealth, power, fame, if they work for you, then great, you don't need to be here on this hot night. Many people, especially in the Cambridge, Boston area, uh, have been rather successful in life in conventional terms. Adequate or more than adequate in terms of education, money, security, and yet there's something left over. It's no accident that this teaching has caught on in opulent countries like the United States and in Europe. There's something left over. And so the Buddha encouraged people to do this reflection sort of lighting a fire under our bun to help us understand uh, not just practice. Uh, for me, practice is living. It's the, how precious human life is, put it in a more general sense. If you're a meditator, the style of this practice is to join awareness and the willingness to learn with everything that you do. So there's no real separation or more and more it becomes like that. And so it's alerting us to uh, how precious life is, and that is definitely some of the fruit that comes from noticing death even a little bit. The people who you love in your life become even more precious when you, you look at them. I've used the phrase shining the light of death on life. It enhances the value of ordinariness. We more and more take things for granted less and less. And sometimes it could be 
a death of someone or a near death for ourselves, or in this case, uh, an intentional reflection, can really uh, alert us to what's happening. Uh, when we shine the light of death on a lot of our problems, they seem to fall away. So many of what we're, much of what we're worrying about is relatively trivial. When we're angry at people, when we lack in compassion, to reflect on the fact this is an ancient contemplation, that all of us, every, each and every one of us, we're all comrades in aging, sickness, and death. Uh, when you look at a person that way, uh, something melts inside of you. Uh, all these wars that are breaking out with this uh, ethnic uh, madness that uh, is sweeping the planet. Uh, if people could reflect on the fact that we, we don't have that long, we're all going to die anyway. So what's, why, are we, why are we bothering with all this? The job will be done. Don't worry about it, whether you're Serbian or Albanian or East Timor or whatever. Uh, anyway, in my own experience, it can be a very, very useful adjunct to, uh, to love and to getting things in perspective, to put your life in order. Perhaps uh, start letting go of some things that it's time to let them go. They don't work. Like Mullah Nasruddin, many of you know this story, had all these hot peppers, really hot, a big pile of them sitting there and eating one and then his eyes tearing and just so red hot. Finally, someone comes over and says, Mullah, why are you eating all those red hot peppers? And he says, I keep waiting for a sweet one. So are you doing anything that's like that? You know it's time to drop it. Come on. But it's not so easy, is it? We have this powerful conditioning. And so sometimes when we put things in a more profound framework, uh, some, some of our priorities become rather clear. And then I would say what I emphasize in my own practice, and that I, I think comes through here and in the practice groups, is that facing these inescapable stages in life is a very, very powerful way to deepen the practice. Uh, it's uh, got there's so much energy trapped in the resistance to aging, sickness, and death. The awakening to that, the willingness to, to practice with it, uh, can deepen your own meditation practice beyond belief. The avoidance of it can keep you at a comfortable plateaus, you know, a comfort level, a comfort zone is reached. As many of you know, you can follow the breath, you can get quite good at it after a while. But this is designed for human liberation, liberation from suffering. You know, uh, sometimes for shorthand, in Buddhist books, they'll talk about the first noble truth of suffering, and what's quoted is aging, birth, aging, sickness, and death. And people take that as literal, but there's a much uh, deeper aspect to this, and we're going to at least open it up tonight. Sure, whether you meditate or you don't meditate, your body must age. At some point, it grows ill and all of us must die. Everyone in this room, in fact, the whole planet won't be here at a certain point. And it's not because of pollution or nuclear or uh, global warming. It's just normal, natural. That's the way things go. Okay. Um, here we get to some of the deeper aspects of practice. 
it is maintained, and if you haven't tasted it, or had a glimpse of it, perhaps you have. Uh, in a certain way, it's not that distant when the mind clears up a bit. In the Buddhist teaching, there's something referred to often as the deathless. Is there anything that's beyond aging, sickness, and death? But I don't mean as a romantic a notion somewhere else, but actually that is inherent in the nature of existence right now. And that if you have a mind and a body, you have access to it. No one's been shortchanged. Okay. It's called enlightenment, awakening, coming to your true nature, original nature, many words for it. To see it, it's a, uh, something that is uh, the ultimate fruit of the practice. Uh, I prefer words like awakening and liberation. And also, it's not something that is far away. If we get to karma, uh, I hope this evening, if not next time, uh, I hope I can make clear that uh, karma is not something for the next life. It's not even just for this life, it's for this moment. That is, the way you relate to this moment already alters. You already get the fruit of this moment by the way in which you relate to it. It's immediate. Uh, to give us a little bit of a, what would we call flash or a preview. Aging, sickness, and death, that's often used as a kind of uh, slogan. But although everyone must age, everyone must um, develop illness and die, there's a difference between the, that process happening to the body and the torment that we human beings are quite capable of generating because that happens to the body. And so one, way, one meaning of liberation is you free yourself from that. Now we've gone over that a fair amount. Tonight I'm going to put it in a little bit more perspective. Um, right now I have to take this up because it's where we left off. For those of you who are new, uh, I hope I've given enough so that you can maintain some connection. We uh, have covered uh, ways of uh, the inevitability of these states and that uh, one of the uh, profound accompaniments of, of dying is that you ha you're separated from everything that's precious to you. Think about that for the moment. Your book collection, let's start relatively easy, the easy stuff. Maybe not, I don't know. Uh, material. Homes and cars. Uh, special, subtle kinds of uh, accumulations that we've worked hard at. Um, our story. You mean to tell me that after all these refinements and editorials and headlines and revisions of my story, that uh, it all just, in a certain way, yeah. Then why am I wasting so much time on endlessly improving my story, re repeating it, revising it, telling everyone around me what it is? And if they won't listen, I'll tell it to myself for the thousandth time. You mean you, you let go of that? I think so. Wow, interesting to put that in perspective. 
hard-earned positions, political, philosophic. Now, there's, there are elements of that that do travel with us according to this teaching. But by and large, that all has to be let go of. And that's what I was saying by bad news. We lose it all. It's snatched away from us. There's no choice. You can't bargain at that point. In fact, uh, well, my mother put up quite a fight in her uh, up to her 90th birthday at her deathbed. Um, she would not let go. Some people let go a little bit earlier. But whether you do or you don't, it will be taken away. Maybe finally it's people you love, and the mind itself as you know it. Now, uh, we have to start moving in a direction. I said there was good news that some of you who are new, uh, you picked the right time. Maybe we can squeeze it in tonight and then I can enrich it next time. You remember uh, I mentioned five reflections. The fifth one, sorry, in Theravadan Buddhism, there are all these, you have to become a certified public accountant. There are all these lists and numbers. But they're not arbitrary. I used to think they were. They're quite helpful once you live them, once you uh, breathe some life into them. You see, they're fairly useful. There's a lot of overlap. There's uh, often different ways of coming to the same place. If you remember the fifth one, um, the only thing that we take with us, uh, the consequent karma, that is, we are heir to our own actions, our own deeds. Whereas everything else you leave behind. Okay, now, so I, I of necessity, will deal with karma a bit and, and uh, rebirth. But I don't want to emphasize that tonight because you have to wait too long for that one. And what these teachings are saying is you can benefit from them right now. You don't have to wait for your next life. Please don't. That would really be a silly use of your time. What if there isn't a next life? One thing. Okay. In the Buddha's teaching, uh, the Buddha's teaching on, uh, on rebirth is not the same as reincarnation. I don't know if this is news to any of you, but it's an important distinction. And I don't, everything that I'm going to say won't make sense unless you get the beginnings of a, a sense of the difference. In reincarnation, there's a fixed entity that re-inhabits different life situations, different bodies, for purposes of endless refinement, and growing, spiritual growth, development. So you could call it a soul. The Buddha didn't see anything permanent. And in my 25, 30 years, at this and other related forms of meditation, I haven't either. Not on this level. Not, nothing that arises sticks around. Now, is there something like a soul? I think you could say so in Buddhism, as long as you understand it's not an eternal thing. A kind of crystallization, a, a process that has some patterning to it that's uniquely yours. No one's saying that life is, is, is random. It's a, what the Buddha is saying is that it's a, an ongoing process. So that when, we, when the body dies, something in this teaching, and you do not have to accept it, I'd appreciate if you listen to it, uh, but as I'll try to make clear, you can benefit from these teachings 
whether you believe in it or not. And this was true at the time of the Buddha, and he made that clear. He didn't care if you believed it or not. So if you do, you look more in a more favorable way at it. What the physical body uh, decomposes, dies, and so forth. But there's a kind of a mental continuum which has craving, craving for life as one of its elements, that that process goes on. Now, when that craving grasps on to another, let's say, relationship, body, a new, new set of parents, and so forth, is that new person the same as the one who's sitting here in this hall, or different? That's a, a Zen question often answered in interviews, and <clears throat> you get hit over and over again until you understand it. either one is wrong. If you say the same, it's not exactly the same, just it's a process. But if you say different, it's not really exactly different either. Uh, an ancient image is of a candle. Let's say a candle that's lit and one that is unlit. The one that is lit is this lifetime. You take it and you light another candle, an unlit candle. Now that new flame, is that the same or different than the old flame? Well, this dichotomy, which our human mind tends to uh, use a lot, this tendency to dichotomize, uh, it breaks down. It's not the same, it's not different. It's, I'm not, it has elements that are similar, but it's also in the process of endless change. You don't need to need rebirth to see that, because it's true in this lifetime. It's true from moment to moment, if you observe your mind, your body. It's a constant, uh, very alive process, undergoing change. Are you the same as the you that graduated junior high school? Yes and no, etc. Okay. Now, what is being suggested is that the quality of the existence that comes to you after this death has everything to do with how you've lived now. Not, there isn't some external agency that's going to punish you or reward you. It's more the lawfulness that's akin to uh, if you stick your hand in fire, you get burned. You don't do that after a while. Whereas the, uh, the lawfulness is inherent in the process. Okay, now, uh, so what is being said is that how you live has everything to do with how you're going to be reborn. So if you believe in it, practice. But what if you don't? Can you still have a certain urgency of practice or be sincere and committed? During the time of the Buddha, people challenged him and said, uh, there's no proof of that. We can test all the other things you said, but we can't seem to test that. And he said, fine. He said, uh, if you behave in ways that are beneficial, that is skillful, ways that don't harm yourself or other people, that don't cause suffering, if there is such a thing as rebirth, then that will contribute to a, a fortunate rebirth. If there isn't, you haven't lost anything because it will make your present life better. Do you see what it's getting at? So uh, I would go one step further. If the whole Buddhist, maybe there was no Buddha, science will do dating and scientific will find out he never existed, it's a think tank thought it up, ancient, there were maybe 20 bright people, who, uh, and uh, I would still keep doing this. Uh, not because I'm a Buddhist, uh, fanatical, ideologically committed, uh, true believing Buddhist, 
but because a life of awareness and learning is the most sensible way I know how to live. What, should I start going back to practicing unawareness? Not paying attention, not being willing to learn from my own experience? What good would that do? I've already done that one. I'm still doing it. So what he's saying is the benefits of uh, being careful about how you live, that it's how you live has consequences from moment to moment. So take care of these moments is what's being said. Uh, if there is a, f a future life, then it's whipped cream, chocolate syrup, it's icing on the cake. You're all the better off. But if not, uh, you're doing something that's in your own best interest even right now. So don't kill, steal, lie, misuse sexual energy, cloud your mind, and so forth. Okay. But there's another meaning now of karma that is extraordinarily relevant for the subject that we're on, this aging, sickness, and death, a lot of which we've covered, but maybe I can be concise, which is an achievement for me, as some of you know. Or is there people who always say, uh, to make a long story short, I'm very good at making a short story long. I think it's an ethnic uh, qualification. My father was a Jewish storyteller. It's too hot to be one tonight, but now and then I, I do go into that, so I, I probably will be more brief tonight. Uh, karma, let's take a, a given moment. Uh, the kind of skillful actions are actions that produce suffering in yourself and others. Unskillful actions are actions, in other words, bad karma. Skillful actions are beneficial ones. Actions and intentions and actions, I should emphasize the importance of intentions, that are beneficial for yourself and others. The intention is crucial. If a blind person doing walking meditation, as happened during the time of the Buddha, steps on an ant, on, on an insect, and kills it, uh, the monks wanted to know, is that bad karma? No, because there was no intent to kill. It just it happened because the person was blind. Okay. So good karma, bad karma. But actually, the thrust of the practice is to go beyond all karma. Is there a place that's beyond good karma, bad karma? Well, that's what's being suggested. But now, let's become a little bit more refined about a moment, a given moment. Um, let's take aging. And those of you who've been here, you know we've given some examples. I hope they've been concrete enough. Some were at my own expense. Uh, many of us don't age gracefully or easily. Uh, somehow, even now, there's this whole uh, incredible movement towards uh, the anti-aging, science of anti-aging, the word itself. And, uh, there was a wonderful editorial in the New York Times about a few weeks ago about uh, sort of a word from the side of the, of, of, the, of the elderly people towards the baby boomers who seem to be very interested in how to live forever, you know, with the science of this and the science of that and how we can just uh, extend it. Uh, anyway, this is a very nice, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but he made a very cute point about how somehow what people are impressed with is George Bush at a certain age uh, parachuting and landing, you know, sort of great. In other words, a younger man could do it, but so can, can I. And then some poet who at 70 decided to get a tattoo. These are the kind of great achievements 
that show we can be just as dopey as the young people. Excuse me. Supposed to be objective here. No aversions or cravings. Uh, the thrust of the practice is to come to a place that's free of that. Uh, to take care of your body, there's nothing against jumping out of an airplane if that seems to be something you enjoy doing, but uh, let's not mistake that for some extraordinary achievement. We're even keeping the body alive longer. Alive longer so we can have more time to be uh, full of uh, greed, hatred, and confusion, to keep driving people crazy, to have no joy. Uh, what's the merit of that? Just to be around? Okay, so let's take, uh, see if I can think of, the, we've mentioned so many examples. Okay, one that comes to mind, it does because it's so simple, simple, simple-minded, and yet it was very helpful to me. I learned a lot from it. It came from a yogi who comes to the center, and some of you have heard this example many times, but I'm going to relate it to this teaching on karma right now. Person comes into an interview and uh, talks about being sad and a bit depressed. Why? He's asking why. Well, I woke up this morning and my knees were stiff, and I realized, my God, I'm aging. Just that. And the person was really flattened by it. So we explored it. Uh, it was over. I mean, the suffering had gone on for a number of hours, more than hours, it was like a day and a half prior to coming to the interview. So we just played with it. Okay, let's backtrack. Let's see, like run a movie backwards. What actually happened? What happened was there was some stiffness in the body. Okay? That was experienced and identified with. Because the body, unless you learn otherwise, is what we take to be me and mine. It doesn't mean that the body isn't important. Try living without one. I mean, on this plane, anyway. Uh, but uh, there's a tremendous investment in the body, uh, either negatively, where we're so down on our bodies, or positively, tremendous narcissism. And I would say they're, in a profound way, equivalent. That we've, we take the form, the particular shape and form, and the social judgment on that shape and form, perhaps including its age, not perhaps, definitely including its age, uh, to be tremendously significant and affecting us profoundly. So, stiffness in the knee was grasped onto, and in, the, in our language was turned into self. That is, it suddenly was an, an attack on an image this person had. I'm repeating it. We worked through this, and I was sweating bullets then, too, because there was a lot of resistance. The person had an image of themselves as a certain way, youthful, bouncy, uh, and then suddenly, you know, creaking. You know, this, uh, and of course there are signs that are much more dramatic than just the knee, but that's why I like it, it's so trivial. In, it's not trivial, it's small. And out of that, the mind fed thinking, fed this, the person became just totally depressed. I mean, she was already, uh, Social Security, and she was a, a bag lady. Uh, Social Security was defunct, there was, it was bankrupt. She was in Harvard Square, uh, just asking for change. Uh, no, uh, no relationship, rejected by everyone. Uh, and 
the scenario that came out of that stiff knee was quite something. Okay, that's what we call delusion. Just a descriptive term. We're all doing it, so let's not get condescending towards her. Maybe we aren't so obvious. I'm not saying that the stiffness of the knee might not be a sign that the person was growing older. Good chance it is. But then what follows is that that is taken to be self. And then that has tremendous significance as to who I am, a notion of who I am. So then it becomes not just the aging of the body, it becomes my aging. And what it brought with it was a lot of suffering. And not just sadness and depression, but uh, which, that's what I mean by in that moment, the choice to relate to that, and it's not like she had a choice. This is powerfully conditioned into all of us. So I'm not saying I wouldn't respond the same way, and that I have, and I've mentioned how I have. But what Dharma practice is, is a revolution. It's a quiet, hopefully bloodless one. It's an inner revolution. Finally, I think it's the only one because it's a revolution in consciousness. The other revolutions don't work. Have you noticed? Because they're all banking on rearranging external reality, new legislation. It can improve things, of course. And let's keep trying to do that. Feeding people who are are poor, starving, of course. But finally, unless the real crisis on the planet is a crisis in consciousness, unless the minds change, Just look at ethnicity. It's the same principle at work. Unless the minds change, you can have all the peace conferences and United Nations and all the rest. The problem are not the weapons. The problem is it's the same old mind. We're brilliant with technology. We've done extraordinary, you could say miraculous things. I'm enjoying my computer very much. But somehow we're sub-moronic when it comes to living with each other. We don't know how to do it. We haven't learned a thing. It doesn't seem as if we have gotten that, how important that is, that uh, you can have all the internet you want, but if you don't know how to live together, maybe it's in a way to get away from living together. I don't know. Okay, so this poor woman was really tormented. Now, in that moment, she made that karma. What else could she have done, for goodness sakes? What might we do? Okay, let's say you've been through training, you've done retreats and read books and come to many of these talks, interviews, gone to IMS, sat there, uh, cleaned up your life, cleaned up your act so that your ethics are not all over the place, change your diet, uh, change your job, right livelihood now. What else can you do? The stiffness comes up. The mind, let's say now, has had practice time and time again turning to this mind-body process. Every time you do just walking meditation or just follow an in-breath or an out-breath or are mindful of washing a dish or all the things we encourage one another to do, that is to live a mindful life, what you're doing is strengthening that capacity to receive your own experience intimately. Uh, I'm speaking in general. Please don't get insulted. It doesn't apply to you. But the capacity that most of us have to receive our own experience is rather limited. We can't seem to receive our experience very well. So practice is learning how to receive the moment, which is the experience of this moment, and for that capacity to grow stronger and broader, more comprehensive, 
Uh, liberation grows out of that. It used to be called self-knowledge or self-knowing, but not as an idea, direct, intimate understanding of ourselves and the letting go that comes out of that. So we come back now after having some training. Awareness goes to the stiffness in the knee and you feel it. And maybe there's also a reflection that aging is happening, but somehow the alarm doesn't go off and it isn't grasped onto, appropriated as the materials out of which to build a sense of self. Uh, now, this gets at a very, very profound point in Buddhism. Uh, it's the cutting edge of the whole thing. Finally, what the Buddha is saying, all of it, has to do with not attaching to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. Okay. Uh, and in Buddhism, the notion of there being a self is considered a contrivance, one that we deeply believe in, all of us, to begin with. And as you examine the mind, not thinking about it, but through actual observation, you see uh, that there isn't something called a self, but rather it's an enclosure strung together, by, put together by thought, produced by uh, thoughts and images that are full of contradictions and gaps and, and so forth, conflicts. Uh, in short, empty. They're empty of a substantial nature. Okay, now, the degree to which you've even begun to do that work, that moment could end with the stiff knee. It doesn't have to proliferate. But let's say it does. There's the stiffness and there's immediately uh, a grasping onto it and a sense that I am stiff. It's not that the, the knee is stiff, but this is my knee we're talking about. It's not just any old knee. It's mine and it's connected to the rest of my body. And if this knee is going to get stiff, what about the rest of it? You think that's not going to get stiff? Of course it will. Okay, so the practice proceeds according to where you are. You see that. You see selfing happening in the moment. And it's not dangerous when it's accompanied by clear mindfulness. The power is taken out of it. Or you see you have a tremendous fear of aging. In other words, we're getting, that is, you don't catch it at the sensation level. And it does tend to create a sense of self that's now threatened. It, it cherished images that you've had for a long time are smashed into pieces. You're no longer the youthful, bouncy, uh, whatever. Okay. And there's fear. Okay, we're, we're still in the ball game. We see that we're afraid to grow old. Can we look at that? Suppose you can't even do that. The practice still, the practice is unrelenting. If you really understand the teaching of awareness, it's very gentle, but it's ruthless. There's absolutely no escape. So then what, what is it you'd be mindful of? You'd be mindful of how terrified you are of aging. That's a, a very, very dignified and profound practice. You start where you are. It's not trying to make you be a perfect person who, oh, I understand uh, the bodies are just bodies, minds are just minds, and uh, I don't identify with all of it. It's just the process, ha <laughs> ha, just rolls on, and I'm something uh, that's part of it, but much deeper and safe. No, it's, a, it's training in honesty, really. And so you see resistance, contraction. I don't want to look at how much I uh, dread aging. I think many of us have, know that, that one. 
Well, the combination of the Sangha, community of people, all of whom are trying to do this together, can be encouraging. Retreats where you're stuck. You know, there you are stuck with a bunch of other people who are, uh, and then there's someone, uh, someone who's got the bad karma to have to the thankless task of being the teacher. We've got to, you know, uh, urge you on to, to take a look at what's happening. The day comes, though, where the resistances start to melt a little bit. You start to see that fear can be observed, whether it's of aging, of sickness, or of death itself. Now, in the moment when there's awareness, let's now uh, have a Hollywood ending, happy, because I see our time is, we've extended, gone beyond it. Let's say you've been doing this practice, and now you're a glowing, shining in the dark Vipassana yogi, you know, with wonderful samadhi, ability to drop into the jhanas, your ethical life completely clean, a halo, a candidate for, saint, a candidate for sainthood. The day comes where it's through training, through practice, uh, the mind can look at that, uh, at that process of aging or of sickness or even the fear of death uh, directly. One of the things you might learn is that the fear of death is a fear of the idea of death. Because most of us, although in a profound way we're all dying from moment to moment, the moment of it is not here for all of us, at least as far as I can tell in this room. Often the fear is, again, a thought. The mind creates time. And out of that idea of time and, and that it's running out and that I'm going to die uh, can come terror. It's not actually, when you look closely at it, death, but it's fear of the idea that I will die. In the meantime, everything's fine right now. Maybe. Now, the day will come when you will be dying. And it will be a moment just like this. It will be ordinary in the sense that it's a real part of life. Life includes dying. It includes being born. It includes aging. It includes sickness. It's all natural. But yet we feel singled out, victimized. Uh, how could this be happening to me? It's happened. I don't think we can count high enough to how many people have been through this already. Even if we don't take past lifetimes, just let's say everyone dies at the... When the time comes, you go into the great... The Marxists are right. It's just totally physical process. Think of how many generations have already been through this already. But somehow for us, it's like... Because, of course, we're the center of the universe. At any rate, the karma is very different. When awareness meets the stiffness, or awareness meets the sense of self, or the fear, without judgment, that is, the practice is learning how to be mindful with equanimity, that is, not grasping typically at what we like, and not pushing away, typically at what we don't like. But the awareness is steady, non-judgmental, unbiased. You could even say affectionate. It's just really comfortable, even interested in what is, because that's what is. That's what your life is in this moment. It becomes quite fascinating. That's a different karma. The, the mind is more spacious. The quality of the body changes, the breathing is different. Then if you uh, identify with the body and immediately uh, attack it as being awful, and then that spins out and becomes some, somewhat like what I just mentioned, but just a stiff knee. It's a so the karma, the, the beauty of, of, of mindfulness or awareness or insight in the moment is that you take care of the past, the present, and the future at the same time. 
Think about it for the moment, and let's just quit here for tonight. We've all, let's say, had wounds from the past. Maybe wounds having to do with aging, sickness, and death. Okay, that's over with. The suffering that's happened is gone. It's impermanent. But the memory of it can be right here, and the wound can be right here, and it can be healed through meeting it with a clear mind. Mindfulness or awareness uh, has some magical quality to it. It sets things right. It, when it touches things, especially when the mind's very silent, it stimulates. The silence is stimulated by what meets the silence. In this case, case let's say, a moment of seeing impermanence. And it stimulates a, an understanding that's at a level that's much deeper than intellectual understanding. It's like getting a joke. We all know that everything's impermanent, but we really don't. Okay, when the mind's very quiet, a simple thing, like a leaf falling, can produce a, an enlightenment experience. So what should we do? All run out and wait for a leaf to fall? We're not ripe enough. That consciousness was ready. It could have been a leaf, it could have been anything. So the karma of that moment is taken care of when the mind is practicing. Uh, so in that sense, uh, the quality of life is very, very different. It's a different karmic outcome in the present. And then, of course, the future is a modification of the present. So how we are living now has everything to do with how the future will be. We're, we're planting seeds that will, be, will, will sprout in the future. The ways in which we behave right now are, to some degree, how our future will be. You can tell your future, to some degree, not through a fortune-telling, but through seeing how you're living right now. Why should it be any different unless you change, unless consciousness changes, unless the way you relate to yourself and to all, all else changes? Now, when this ability gets deeper and deeper and deeper and more and more steady, it's possible to taste a place in consciousness which has always been there, which is, can be called awakening, or liberation, or enlightenment, or nirvana, a lot of words for it. The Buddha wisely didn't talk about it, because you can't. It's inconceivable. It's beyond ideas. But it can be touched, and it can be touched by people like us. Now, you may think, as so many people do, oh, that's not for me. I, that sounds like you have to become a professional. Maybe that's okay for you. You do it all the time. Maybe you think I do or I'd have to become a monk or a nun, or go to, to a mountains or a cave. Uh, maybe you don't have that kind of uh, enthusiasm. The benefits that come from taking care of these moments and beginning to face uh, death, that of course includes grieving. Who, is there anyone here who's not lost someone? So I'm not talking about something exotic. Uh, what I'm saying is, I'll leave you with this. This is one of the reasons I'm so motivated for teaching this, and have been for a while. I discovered some years ago, to my surprise, I would probably have been that way too if I didn't have my early teachers who were, this was in Asia, uh, they didn't give me a choice. They threw me into this stuff. I mean, I sat with corpses and watched who had been de decomposed for a while and, uh, and they would say, okay, what are you feeling right now? And I have to be mindful of revulsion, nausea, fear, and all the rest of it. 
So when I brought this into the United States, I'd had a little bit of training in it. But one of the things I discovered is that sincere, highly committed meditators in both Zen and Vipassana, I don't know Tibetan practice as well, people who do lots of retreats, who uh, it's the centerpiece of their life, uh, who have a daily practice, who are, have a lot of love for the teachings of the Buddha, who are really trying to live it. But when they get uh, the, the issues of aging, sickness, and death, out to lunch. People will be sick, oh yeah, I had the flu for 10 days. And I'll say, well, uh, were you able to practice while you practice? You know, that's a time for TV or, uh, of course, you, you sleep more. But it doesn't, often the mind doesn't, it doesn't occur to the mind that the very same practice that you're using uh, at Barry or at CIMC, uh, there's nothing different. There you are lying in your bed. In a way, you have a wonderful opportunity to do a retreat. What else? You don't have too much. How much TV can you watch? And you can just do the same old boring Vipassana practice, only you know, you're watching depression, you're watching low energy. It can be, become quite fascinating. And anyway, I realized that if this is true among the really dedicated yogis, that somehow we don't want to go near these three. That uh, this is probably one of the reasons the Buddha insisted on it uh, thousands of years ago. Okay, um, <clears throat> those of you who would like to leave, is a good time. Uh, I'll stick around for questions. Um, if you decide to stay, I don't, won't consider it rude. You can get up at any time and leave. Uh, some of you may have only five or ten minutes and you just want to stay for that time. That's fine with me. into whatever's on your mind, um, as long as you understand I'm hardly an expert on aging, sickness, and death. Uh, anyone who says they are, I would uh, leave the room immediately. I'm in there with you, attempting to live out my own life and to put these uh, teachings and practices into action. Please. They're all on tape in the uh, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center tape library. Please. I understand. Of course, the problem is still about you isn't it? Yeah. In other words, they have their body and they have to deal with it. But how you deal, who is it, if you don't mind? You don't have to, is it a, someone close to you? Yes. Okay. How you take care of yourself will dramatically influence how you're able to, let's say, be constructive in this person's. Is she dying, do you think? Could be. Okay, you know, it's at, it's at all stages. It's at all stages. Um, it's not that you will need a new practice. Do you know the basics of mindfulness and all that stuff? Um, what it is, is um, whatever 
you bring to the situation, that is, you as a person and wherever your practice actually is at this moment, um, what does this person bring up in you? Uh, and here, I don't mean read books about how to take care of the aged, or I don't mean that they don't have value. Read them, but then uh, finally get to the, the main book that all of us have to read is you. And that is to be read from moment to moment. So let's say, is she in the hospital or an institution? Yeah. You visit her. It's going to bring up stuff for you. Those are the, that's what you practice with. And you practice with it right there, and you practice with it at home. And uh, I've learned a lot here. I'll give you just two examples. Um, I hope there will give you an idea of what's possible. One was my father developed Alzheimer's disease and was in a, a nursing home for the last three years of his life from age 87 to 90. Um, my father and I are very close. Uh, I, I was used to a very alert, intelligent, in fact, if I had any problems, he was too alert. Uh, growing up was very difficult because he, would, he was like W.C. Fields. Don't you know what that, you know, children have their balloons, you know, bubbles, soap bubbles. He was always puncturing mine because I was deluded even more than I am now. And he would just see it and say, oh yeah, right. Do you see what's going on? I said, no, what do you mean, Dad? And it would just fall bit. And suddenly, uh, his mind, the mind I was used to was confused, contradictory, strange. Uh, not all the time. At any rate, for the first six months when I would visit him, uh, a number of things went on. One, of course, you can imagine there was, there was some sadness in me in seeing him this way. What I'm talking about now is face-to-face. And I did my best to practice with it, to feel uh, sadness, uh, all kinds of feelings, whatever they were. Uh, Using the breath to calm myself, to steady myself when I needed it. Uh, And then the day came where I saw something just by paying attention. This didn't come from a book, although it's uh, basic Dharma 1.1. I saw that I was not intimate with my father, uh, even though I thought I was, underscore thought, because I had put him now into the category of Alzheimer's patient. I had uh, read a lot of books on Alzheimer's, and there he was, to some degree, exemplifying all the things that I'd read about. And I was with my father, I was comparing him to how he used to be, and worrying about how he was going to be. And once I saw that, that I was, in a sense, uh, intimacy was interfered with by a diagnostic category. Once I let that go, throw away Alzheimer's patient, there was my father, and he was this way. And uh, it changed things dramatically. What I saw was he had uh, rather uh, extended periods of, of lucidity where he was even clearer than in the past, and especially about himself. And that there was learning going on at age 70 about himself, and some of it uh, quite something. And he was definitely seeing me. And I was able to see that once the con- conceptual notions between us, I had him, but you have to see what you come, let's say you go to visit your mother-in-law. You might have baggage that you walk into the nursing home or the hospital with, which are already about who she is and what's happening to her based on past visits and so forth. 
If you see that, don't, don't try to banish it. That won't work. You'll get exhausted. But you can see these things in the mind. You get, if you practice, you can. They fall away, and then you're just with your mother-in-law, as she is. And I was just with my father, and then he would become wacky and uh, irrational and you know, and then all of a sudden he would, uh, you know, I would be feeding him and being very, very protective and caring and he'd look up at me with a, a smile and he'd say, um, relax, I know you love me, I love you too, take it easy. And I'd go, oh, duh. Uh, so that, that was one kind of learning. Now, uh, it comes out of just our ordinary practice, that's what I'm trying to say. Learning how to live and learning how to die, or learning how to be with other people's death, to me is the same thing. It's, this is what's happening. The practice equips you uh, to do it in a much more effective way. Another example with my mother. And this is another one where, you, uh, where even Dharma teachings can get in the way. I mean, the first one, medical diagnostic categories. I, I didn't realize it until now. It may be the same teaching. I don't know. Uh, I was with my mother, she was dying, there were my sister and other family members, we were all with her at her bedside, and we were told that she was going to die any hour, and we came rushing up from Cambridge, this was in Northampton, and it turned out that she lived for many weeks, we checked into a hotel near the hospital, we were with her as much as we could, could be. And then finally it looked like it was really very, very bad. She couldn't breathe, it was belabored. It just seemed like the poor woman, it was just such torment. And I would hold her hand a lot. And this time, um, as I was holding her hand, I gave her a, a, a Dharma wrap about, you know, Mom, your body has served you well for 90 years. Uh, it's, uh, it's worn out. Uh, you don't have to work so hard. Uh, you can just let things happen naturally. Uh, don't worry about it. Everything is going to be all right. Because uh, she was fighting so hard to stay alive. Every time I would use words like letting go or mention anything that implied uh, go with the flow, you know, all the New Age Dharma kind of, her hand would get tighter and tighter. You know, I could see she was getting more and more miserable. Uh, and what it was is she didn't want to be told about letting go and that she was close to death and that her body was used up and that it had served her well and that uh, and then uh, duh I got it I dropped this uh, insight vipassana approach and just another approach which is part of our practice much more appropriate metta loving kindness I reminded her of how loving a person she was and uh, how we loved her and then her hand just relaxed. You know, she wasn't squeezing my I thought gangrene would sit in on my hand. I don't know where she got the strength. And suddenly it relaxed, and she was 90% paralyzed, but a slight smile, and everyone chimed in about, she just wanted to be loved up and to be reminded uh, of how she had been when she was uh, younger. So uh, you see, though, that both were learned in action, in combat, so to speak. Uh, you won't learn them unless you're uh, committed to being fresh and awake. So by read technical books, take workshops on grieving, all that, because uh, a lot of sensible things are being said and which the culture needs to hear. But then finally, um, it's always the same with practice. Even practice, has, the teachings have to be set aside 
guidelines, a you know, sign point pointing to Boston. And then just practice. Do you see what I'm, so what you have to do is look at what this is bringing up in you. Now there's one traditional teaching from the time of the Buddha on. It's a reflection that affects all of us. When someone is dying, uh, the traditional view is that this is the last present that they're giving you, the last gift. The gift is that they're reminding you of your own uh, perishable nature. And so in the light of everything that I said earlier, where we're learning to open up to this obvious truth, they're helping you do that. They're helping you say, you know, you're not exempt from this. You're, uh, thank you for being kind to me. And I would say that's the main thing, is to be, help the person's uh, last times on earth to be as peaceful, as harmonious, as supported as possible. Uh, but they're also giving you something, whether they intend to or not, which is they're showing you that uh, you're part of this. And then, of course, that would depend what you do with that. Do you use it to uh, use uh, samvega, to awaken that emotion of the urgency of, of spiritual practice? Uh, do you use it to uh, enhance your sense of the preciousness of life, etc.? Please. To what? Oh, you see, what this is about, uh, there is, I'm, I'm um, limiting, life is much broader than aging, sickness, and death. They're quite crucial. You, there's no way to escape them. You know, they, death and life are walking hand in hand. We, we have a, a, an illusion that it's way ahead. But if you're talking about uh, addiction, you know, uh, all other forms of suffering, the same principles would be used, the same practices used, uh, to help you break your addiction. Finally, what the Buddha is saying is the, the supreme addiction is addiction to selfing, the addiction to, to an egocentric life. Uh, that's what delusion or ignorance is. That is the notion that uh, the way to get happy, and we all want to get happy, is through the fulfillment of the ego. And that is what we're all doing, and we, we've created a nightmare as a result. It seems obvious that we should do that. But can you say, can you relate what you're saying to what the, a narrower theme than what this? Because I don't want to get, I don't want to stray. Do you, you see what I'm getting at? Not to take whose? Yes, okay. But can we be more concrete? Because this is not about a global statements of that sort. It's sort of like Let's say it's me, and it's my schizophrenia. Of course, we all are, but you mean, let's say, in a, in a clinical sense. Yeah. Uh, and now, I mean, you probably all know, racism 
one Harvard psychiatrist is suggesting that that's a form of uh, mental illness. Well, the Buddha is in effect saying that the whole human existence is mental illness, you know, unless there's some wisdom and compassion in it, which there are to some degrees. That if, you, if I am the person who has some schizophrenic tendencies or that energy is in me deeply, step number one is I don't know if I'd be able to make use of this practice. I don't know. Uh, I have uh, tried with, personally uh, not everyone can, can uh, make use of this. This requires uh, a quality of attention that may be uh, beyond the, the capacity of the person at that time. What I have seen is, uh, and other, it's being done in India, in certain mental hospitals, some of the calming concentration practices of meditation apparently can be used in a limited way to help calm people down. But that presupposes the person would have to be able to hear the instructions, understand them, uh, be able to sit still long enough to do them. Uh, do you see what I'm getting at? Uh, I'm not saying that this is some uh, blanket you know, cure for anything. Uh, it's only useful if you can use it and do it. If it's your re reaction to somebody else's schizophrenia, which is affecting you, well then, then, uh, then the principles of practice are identical with what I was saying earlier. And now what's troubling you is not uh, your mother's dying or your father's uh, Alzheimer's or your mother-in-law's uh, state of mind, but your reactions to the fact that a, a dear friend or a loved one is, has a serious mental illness. And so um, it's imperative that you work on yourself, otherwise there are two casualties in the world. The person with the mental illness and now you. Uh, and that's an important distinction because often we think compassion is when we uh, get sucked into it too. And we become miserable because someone we love is miserable and that's a sign of how we love them. And there are people who are uh, from the Holocaust, from Vietnam, who carry things for 50 years because they feel that to let go of it would be to not be showing love to those who weren't as fortunate to, as to live, survive. Am I, do you see what I'm getting at? Do you, have, do you have a meditation practice? Okay. Do, you have, do you practice this? This is not, uh, I'm not the truant officer, or we're not going to give you a pointed hat. Yeah, you, no, no, I just need to know who I'm talking to. It's kind of hard for me. Okay. I'm all for movement. You know, it's not that, but is it a mindfulness that is, um, whether it's you or someone else, uh, what we're learning here, it's not, even sitting is really uh, an invention to help the mind become still. It's not really the body is uh, not the point, although most of us need to still the body in order to help the mind get still. But the point is for the mind to become still so that you can be doing whatever you're doing, including being in a busy world, but for the mind to be still. That's the direction this goes in. Sitting is an invaluable, for most of us, essential. Uh, way of helping bring about that uh, tremendous change in the quality of mind. If you, that's what I meant. If you don't have a practice, I don't see how you could do some of the things I'm talking about. I, I, you know, I, it's not that I'm, it's not that it's elitist or I'm anti-democratic. Uh, nothing's for everyone. Uh, if you can't, if you, if you're not willing to, let's say, train to the, help cha train the mind so that it has some steadiness. You won't be able to look at fear. Good chance of it. Probably not. Do you see what I'm getting at? 
Okay, but um, I would say, let's say, with people who are called schizophrenic, if we throw away that category and take it a person at a time, some people who are labeled that way may be able to benefit. Uh, someone from our community, a man in his 70s, developed Alzheimer's. This is not exactly what you're saying, but it's on the way. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. I've known him for 25 years. And he, he was teaching these things, and one day the deterioration was starting, you know, with memory and stuff. One day he was in front of a group of students, and he didn't know wh who they were or what he was doing there. Uh, it was extremely humiliating, and then it started to deteriorate pretty rapidly from then on in. Uh, with the help of his wife and some good Dharma friends, and of course the fact that he had had 20 years of training, one of the things he learned how to do was, uh, because he was sometimes coherent, a fair amount of the time, and then suddenly he wouldn't know who he was, where he was, uh, he wouldn't remember anything, uh, who he was talking to, he would know who I was, and he's known me a long time. And then that would freak him out. Okay, what he learned was, uh, I, I just saw him uh, about a month ago, and I asked him, how is it now? And he said, well, I wake up in the morning, and the first thing is I look around, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know where I am, what I'm supposed to do next. And, uh, and then I, but then I know that fear comes and panic, and then I just sit there. But what I do remember to do is to practice with that. You know, so that he's able to, and of course his wife, and uh, I've been with him socially when it's happened in the middle of it. And I've waited for the right moment to just say, uh, how's the breathing going right now? Because he would get very upset, you know, the fact that he couldn't speak coherently with me. And then uh, sometimes he could look at the fear. If he couldn't, he could look at his breath, or both at the same time. So, but here was someone who had a practice, but was able to the mind severely damaged, engendering a lot of fear and despair. He learned how to... The mind is still deteriorating, that's a physical process. But he learned how to take a lot of the torment out of it. You see, and that's a lot of what we're talking about. All of us, your body will get sick, old, and die, no matter how much meditation you do, or how much bread and circus you funnel down your, your throat. Uh, it's inevitable, but it's how you take what happens to you. That's, it's a different relationship to your experience, and that's what the revolution is. Because we're not brought up to face the way it is. We're brought up to escape anything that's unpleasant, and to be very concerned with what should be, what used to be, but not so much with what is. The practice is over and over and over again bringing you back to what is. That's all I really do in trying to teach this stuff. People's minds are always going to what should be or what used to be, and I'm always saying, but what's happening right now? You try to say it in many different ways so you don't bore everyone, including yourself, to death, but that's really what it amounts to. And it's, it's not so easy to relearn that or to learn it. It's the best I can do, yeah, yeah. But you know, if it's not applicable, just drop it. I think you're right. Yeah. Now, in terms of addiction of any kind, you can definitely use this to help you with it. 
whether it's smoking or coffee or chocolate or, you know, relatively manageable ones. But what I'm saying is a supreme addiction is to, to something. They're all little expressions of that, probably. And see, as long as you have the ability to observe, to pay attention, if something's observable, then it's workable. Why don't we have, I'm getting a hint as with people filing out. And, why don't we have a, a, wrap it up, anyone else, please? Let me ask you a question. Is there some? Uh, so you see that we're practice, if you really dare to practice, if you really dare to practice, uh, then there's no holiday, but you don't want a holiday because it's a great way to live. During this hour plus, what is it? It's a little more than an hour and a half, sorry. Um, did any anxiety come up? Any apprehension? Any uh, aversion? Any et cetera, et cetera? Anything that we're talking about? Can I have a show of hands? Great. Okay. At that point, what's important is not me or what I have to say. You know, that's just blah, blah, blah. At that point, uh, the talk would be even much more valuable. Uh, you don't have to lose sense that, you know, you're in a, a hall with a person blabbing away and so forth, but turn to that. Uh, what I'm trying to say is the opportunity to, to free yourself from these apprehensions and anxieties uh, come up all day long. They can come up by looking at an earth filmage footage on earthquakes in Turkey or Greece or uh, wherever they come up. Uh, my own feeling is that I have Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.